Welcome to the Dreamcatcher Podcast, a place where you'll receive a boost of inspiration, practical advice, and tools to maximize your success and personal happiness. And that's not all. You'll also get plenty of guidance on how you can use your gifts, talents, and compassion to contribute towards making the world a better place. Be sure to sign up for our free weekly newsletter for a preview of what's in store and to also receive a free ebook. To sign up, simply visit www.thedreamcatch.com. Now it's my pleasure to introduce you to the host of the Dreamcatcher podcast, Celine Chinoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Dreamcatcher podcast, a place where your dreams can find a voice. We all face adversity from time to time, but some of us are able to flourish when things get difficult, while others seem to struggle. So what does it take to stand firm during the tough times? According to my guest, Mark Nepo, the key to standing strong in life's inevitable storms is to know our true self and solidify our connection to all spirit and all life. He's here to explain more. Mark Nepo is a poet and philosopher who has taught in the fields of poetry and spirituality for over 40 years. A number one New York Times bestselling author, he has published 22 books and his work has been translated into over 20 languages. Mark has been interviewed several times by Oprah Winfrey and was also chosen as one of OWN's Super Soul 100 a group of inspired leaders using their gifts and voices to elevate humanity. In 2015, he was given a Lifetime Achievement Award by Aged Nation. During our conversation, Mark will offer his valuable insights and practical steps on navigating difficulties based on principles from his book, Surviving Storms. He'll eloquently bring us to common passages and paths, urging us forward on the journey. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to like, rate, share, and subscribe to this podcast. Thanks. Hello, Mark. How are you doing today? Oh, wonderful. It's great to be with you again. Yeah, it is so nice to have you back on the show. How have you been since we last talked? I believe it was about a year ago. Yeah, well, I've, I've been uh, back on the road and in person with folks, which has just been tremendous. And um, I'm always amazed at how you know, Zoom has been so, so meaningful, but it doesn't replace that certain magic that happens when we're in person together. Yeah, sure. And you are doing workshops in the United States, or are you doing it in other places outside? Well, I'm actually US? I'm doing things in several places. Certainly in the United States, but I'm actually doing in late in late February. I'm teaching a week in Mexico at the Modern Elder Academy. Yes, and yes, I saw that on Instagram. That's amazing. Yeah, and then in May, the last week in May, I'm leading a retreat um, in Florence, Italy. Yeah, that place has a lot a lot of it's high vibe, isn't it? Florence with all the oh, art and the yeah. culture. I mean, when you really think about um the Renaissance, you know, we're so used to it as part of history, but when you think about that as a period of creative uh a creative time as it was happening, it's quite remarkable. 
And so mm-hmm. it's, yeah, so we'll be, I'd be journeying with a, about 20 or 24 people for a week and, uh, and kind of looking at in that, in that space of renaissance, what is our personal renaissance? What is our personal mm. rebirth? How are we opening to the creativity in our life and to partner That's with right. life in that way? Yeah. Are spots still open for that? Yeah, there's about four or five spots still open for that. Okay. And, and that's you can find that on my website. And um, Okay. Yeah, I'll provide that in the in the description. So anyone who's interested can check that out. Yeah, so but for today, today uh, we'll be discussing your new book, which is Surviving Storms. And we're gonna do a deep dive into some of the concepts that you cover in it because you have covered a lot. And as always, Mark, I have to say that your writing is just such a pleasure to read. I mean, it's so beautiful. I love how you phrase things. And, you know, it really touches the heart and the core of life's truth. So, yeah, I just want to say that right from the get-go. Well, thank you. Thank you. I so appreciate it. So, Mark, what motivated you to write Storms? Why did you think that it was necessary to share the message in this book at this particular time in history? Well, I think that, you know, as we went through the pandemic, um, it was so powerful for everyone. And I and I realized that, you know, every generation has its challenge. Um, and this is our turn. You know, certainly the pandemic is was so unusual, but, you know, in my parents' generation, it was World War II. And in other generations, there's always something that challenges us, not so much in progress, but it's our turn. Are we going to choose love over fear? Are we going to help each other up when we fall? How are we going to do this? And And so realizing that and being a long-term, you know, cancer survivor, it's been... 35 years. Um, But it it was interesting. I realized that, and this is where the metaphor comes for with storms is, you know, if you look at a redwood tree, like let's say out in California, you know, they're enormous, right? And, Mm -hmm. uh, and despite the harshness of weather, I don't, they might be damaged, but I don't think that a redwood tree would ever be uprooted because their roots are strong and their trunks are wide. And that was the metaphor that for us to survive storms, both actual storms, societal storms, personal storms, relational storms, we have to strengthen our roots and widen our trunk. And what that translates to is what every generation, we have to find a personal spiritual practice that will help us survive the storms of our own life and our own time. And so, you know, when when I was in, as all of us were in the pandemic, and and this was interesting because it it conjured up a moment from my journey, my cancer journey. And I realized what came up for me was I remembered a moment when I was diagnosed all those years ago, and I I had a huge tumor growing in my skull and I went to a doctor and, and he, you know, said I had cancer and I was frightened and terrified and everything was upside down. 
I know. I, I thought, are you sure you have the right folder? <laughs> you know, it might be, would it be someone, could it be somebody else? Right, right. Left, <laughs> you were in denial initially. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, yeah. when I left the office that day, the door I had come through to keep that appointment was gone. What I mean by that is that I, there were the life before that appointment, there was no way back to my life before that appointment. And that came back to me during the pandemic because I think that the global pandemic has done that for humanity. The old world is gone. Much as we want to deny it or be angry about it or blame someone or it's gone. And the only way is to love each other forward. And that was kind of the central, like in the fact of what we are facing and in the fact that every generation, it's our turn. How are we going to do this together? And how would you describe the old world, Mark? What are some of the characteristics? Well, I think that, and, and these tie in, I think, to the struggles that human beings have had forever. But in our time, you know, I spend the first part of the book taking my, and, you know, nobody knows, but just taking my own guess at how do we in our modern world wind up where we are today? And what I was discovering, at least in my attempt to understand it, is if we go back, we can go back as far as 400 years in America to slavery, one of the first kind of deep flaws in our society. Mm-hmm. You know, we had, we had, you know, these founding fathers who were remarkable men, but they were just men not gods. And, you know, they imagined this amazing experiment, freedom and democracy. And yet at the same time, they owned other people. Uh, that, you know, so, I mean, ever since then in America, there's been this contradictory tension between loving the world and bending the world to our will. And we've been struggling with that ever since. Now, 200 years ago, when the Industrial Revolution began, see, all these things start to kind of all come together in almost a perfect societal storm in our age. So then in the Industrial Revolution, which, you know, was remarkable in terms of progress, um, but what started to happen there was we started to fracture and lose contact with our own human nature and with relationship and and the person who had real insights about this was Karl Marx now you know Marx we associate with communism and Marxism right. and everybody but you know gets all up and, but you know Marx I think actually got a got a bad rap you know I he mean did. Marx didn't, he didn't create Marxisms you know dictators did but what he was was basically a, a sociologist who had insights about society. And so in 1844, just as the Industrial Revolution is starting, he looks around and he and he says, wow, this is great. But he didn't say do away with progress. And he said, wow, I can see what's going to happen. You know, so before this, it was mo- people mostly lived by farming. Mm-hmm. And by exchanging, bartering, like if I was a cobbler and I made shoes and you were a farmer, you'd give me potatoes and I'd give you shoes. Yeah. So but, there was this natural interdependency. 
Yes. And yeah. then, and we lived where we worked. Yeah. Especially farmers. So now the industrial revolution comes along and there are factories all of a sudden. Mm. And now for the first time, uh, people are having to leave home to work. Mm. They're spending a good part of their days away from home. So there's a separation from family. Then you take that the work at the factory was fragmented. You know, when you were a farmer or a cobbler, you were seeing things through from beginning to end. You planted something, you tended it, you harvested it, you turned this field over to regenerate. Or if I was a cobbler, I, I imagine I designed the shoe, I cut the leather, I stitched it, I made it. Well, now you're having people that are doing one part. You know, right? We have the assembly. So you're assembly not involved, involved in the whole process. Yeah. And so while... Yeah. Well, that's good for efficiency. It's not yeah. good for our soul because not only are we separated from family and relationships, now we're separated from the wholeness of life. We become fragmented. Mm -hmm. And so what Marx said was, Mark, Karl Marx looked and said, wow, you know, if enough people are separated from their basic human nature, you will have an alien nation. And he was the one who coined the term alienation, mm. being estranged and separate and apart from other people and things. And so he actually, he didn't say do away with progress. He imagined that the first generation of therapists, he called them alienists because their job would be to repair people to their basic human nature. Well, okay, we could sure use that today, couldn't we? <laughs> We have, yeah, and do you think it's exasperated as time has gone by? Absolutely. So now we add on to that. So we see we have these cross-purposes that happened in America around, you know, cultivating slavery while claiming we're free. Then we have in the Industrial Revolution where people are fragmented from their from each other and from the wholeness of life. And now you look into our modern age. And so first off, there's, uh, before we get to social media, there's this whole thing that happens in the last 60, 70 years around reality TV culture. Yeah, I found that, that part very interesting. Yeah. Oh, so my God. Of course, reality TV culture has little to do with reality. So what we have here are two things that start to happen, as I can see. One is, instead of taking the risk to li live life directly, we're vicariously living life through shows that are uh, Survivor, uh, The Amazing Race, uh, Fear Factor. The Bachelor. Bachelor, all these things. Mm. that give us the illusion that we're participating and having relationship. We even get to vote. American yeah. So we, we vicariously like live through these characters. Right. And then we yeah. expend all this energy. Yeah. And then we turn the TV off and we're, and we really haven't had a relationship. We're all alone. Mm -hmm. So I want to go back for a second. When we talk about this, if you go all the way back to Roman times, if, 
we've all heard of the Roman Colosseum. Well, now the Roman yeah. Colosseum was deliberately created by the Roman aristocracy to dissipate the energy of the masses. So they created this place where they could see, you know, lions eat Christians and slaves and where they would see gladiators fight to the death and people would get all charged up like people who watch, uh, you know, whatever, raw wrestling on TV and all that. Okay. And, but they deliberately did that so that people would have exhausted themselves through this entertainment, you know, just brutal as it was and have no energy to ask for a better life. Now, if we fast forward again to our time, I don't think anybody deliberately created this, but I think quite inadvertently, reality TV culture has become our virtual coliseum where we expend all our energy, our care, even our love. And we go so invested in which person that bachelor or that woman's going to choose or what person is is going to get to be the American idol or what, whatever it might be. But we have not looked at our own lives and invested our energy and heart in ourselves and each other. And so we're exhausted. Now you add on top of all of this, the insulation of social media. So now social media has made us even more isolated. And what I found quite disturbing, and there was a a documentary called The Social Dilemma, Mm. where several of the quite talented um, people who had helped create things like Facebook and Google and all these things, these platforms, um, they actually realized almost like, you know, the myth of Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein creating the monster. They started to realize after years what they had created and they, and several of these people left and created this documentary to speak about what, and and so what was created, which so was so disturbing to me was, um, all the algorithms, which is for pure greed. Right. They just want to keep you hooked as long as possible. Yeah. So if you or I, you know, if we click on something, we get more of what we clicked on. So if I, and this is what was disturbing because this started to, uh, get so confusion about what's real. So, For instance, and I found this astonishing, if you are someone who's liberal, then and you keep looking at liberal things, and that's fine. But then when you click up to say, what's the definition of climate change? Well, that will come up for you as an urgent existential world crisis. But if you are conservative and you click everything, when you ask for the definition of climate change, you look at something that says it's a hoax. Now, these are. So it's completely customized to your perspective and your worldviews, your political leanings as well. Yeah, everyone winds up inadvertently in their own bubble. In their own bubble, yes. And then you add 
the isolation of the pandemic. So people have a confusion about what's real and what's not. And yeah. um, and and one other thing I'll I'll add is around the the shift in what's real and what's not. So you know, fifty years ago, about you know, you had like Ronald Reagan, who was the first actor elected president. Now. And then you had Jesse Ventura, who was a professional wrestler, who was the governor of Minnesota. So you had all these starting, but those people at least were setting aside their acting career to try to serve. Now we can say they didn't have any experience or did they? Or that's a whole nother. Then you get to a place where it's unclear. And, and, you know, even, even movies and things started out as, this is a, we know that that's not real, but we're going to go to the theater to enjoy it and take a break. Yeah, just be entertained. Yeah. Yeah. Then we get to a place where, because of all of this isolation, we're not sure what's real and what's not. And then you mm. come to uh, when Trump was president, and now we have someone who's deliberately trying to in, to replace what is true with what is false, so we've had this yeah. kind of perfect storm of all these 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 disturbing currents that I don't think anybody in, you know created or intended, but here we are, and yeah. I think one one of the sim, it sounds simple, but I think all the spiritual traditions speak about it. I think that there's a good part of our society globally that has lost their direct connection to life. I agree. So, so you look at the insurrection and like many of us, uh, we happened to see that live on TV and it was yes. horrifying. And what the was one so, on January 6th, right? Yes. 20, and what was so disturbing, 20, yeah. Yeah, yeah, January 6th. And what was so disturbing to me, here were people, forget the politics, here were people being barbarically violent and at the yeah. same time, they're taking pictures of themselves. Like they're so dissociated as if they're in a video game. Like they don't know what's real and what's not. Mm. And so if you have a direct connection with life, the truly between a direct connection in your heart with life and everything that's living then you can't you have reverence for life and you can't do harm so i, I think that so many of us have lost our direct connection with life and we need to restore that so how do we do that what do i mean by that well again all the spiritual traditions offer many ways to do that by meditation stop just be still let the noise and everything go away so i can mm. you know so if I'm talking to you, I'm really listening to you. And then I, re I go, oh, my God, it's you. I remember now. Oh, you know. And and I think that, you know, one of, so say, for instance, if I, there's all these arguments about what's real and not. Well, <clears throat> there are things that are facts. Like if I, if I put my hand in water, I don't need you to tell me it's my hand's wet. Mm -hmm. I know it. And likewise, I know when I'm hurting, I know when you're hurting, 
I know what love is. I know what care is. So how do we restore these direct experiences by slowing down and truly living our life? That's so true. That's so true. And, you know, you you really get into the, um, you know, into the details of how we can tackle this, this problem, this macro problem that we're all facing as a global society. But one of them that I thought was, you know, really interesting and, you know, very common is what you talk about in the chapter called 10,000 Hands. In that chapter, you bring our attention to this need to just want more and more and more because we just feel like we don't ever have enough, you know? So could you tell us what exactly you're exploring here, Mark? Yeah. So the image, the 10,000 hands comes from, uh, and this was my way into unpacking this. And this Mm -hmm. is the, what I'm exploring here is how do we live the life we're given and not keep chasing the life that we think is out there? Yeah. The reality TV life, right? Right. And, and, and this is all before reality TV, I mean, this has always been a, a challenge for human beings. Mm. The menacing assumption that life is other than where we are. It's over there. If I could just get over there, then I'd be happy. If I'm alone and I see a couple walking, down, oh, if I could just be like them, then I'd be happy. Or if I could just be achieve this, then I'd be happy. And so we wind up chasing paradise, you know, And one of the things that I know my own journey with cancer is one of the, nobody wants suffering. I'm not advocating it. It's like gravity. But when we fall down or when we suffer or then we help each other up. And then we realize that heaven is right here in the next step. In the moment we are here with, if we enter it. And so the 10,000 hands, you know, the heart, the image is that the heart has 10,000 hands. It wants everything. It wants to go everywhere and experience everything and love everyone. Why can't I love everyone? Well, because you can't, you you can, but you'll do it poorly, (laughs) which is you won't be able to care for everyone equally. And you won't be able to be there for everyone. So, so the, 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 the other side of this is that my heart has 10,000 hands and that is, that's what desire is. I want to go every, I want to travel everywhere. I want to experience everything. I want to do everything. So there's nothing wrong with that until we believe that we won't be complete unless we do these things. Okay. But I only have two hands. And so what if I bring all that want and desire into my two hands to care for the one thing that's before me? Rather than going out and trying to go where I'm not, what if I bring all of that to where I am? And when we do that, heaven opens up. Heaven is right there before us. So, you know, I could meaning well, like say we're together with a bunch of friends and we're make, I'm making tea for all of you. Well, I can try to carry 10 cups of tea to give to you and I'll probably spill one and burn somebody rather than take all of that care into the one cup of tea I bring to you with all my heart. 
Yeah. And you can access the depth of life when you do that, when you focus your energy on, on the thing that's right in front, front of you in the moment. Yeah. So this is what, you know, my, my book, my day book of awakening, you know, the subtitle is having the life you want by being present to the life you have, not, not chasing that, you know, so it's fine. Like, you know, I, I realized, I guess my first understanding of this was during my cancer journey all those years ago. I had a an experience where I had all these difficult tests in one day. I had a uh, spinal tap and bone marrow samplings, all these very difficult things. And yeah. I was living where I was living. I, I needed to, back then, I don't know if it's true now, but when you had a spinal tap, you had to lie flat for six to eight hours so the spinal oh fluid could regenerate. Otherwise, you would get a migraine. <laughs> And I was in How my old 30s. were you? How old were you, Mark? I was in when my thirties, like thirty. Oh, in your thirties. Yeah. yeah. And um, so still um, young, so young. Oh my God, it was yeah. you know unbelievable. And um, so there I was, and of course it was hard for me to be still. So every time I moved, I got a headache. And then it was like you know God or the universe was saying to me, "Are you going to be still? I I got another headache. You want another one?" <laughs> And so finally I was still and where I was living, I I was in the living room and I looked out. There was an apple tree in the front yard, which I'd seen forever, but never really looked at like we're talking about until I was forced to be still. And then I I saw this apple tree in a very deep and kind of holy way. And and not in words, but the apple tree kind of said to me or God or the universe through the apple tree said, on the other side of this, no, no more making things up. You will simply, you know, praise the miracle of what is. And, and so I think, you know, that was one of the first times I was forced into my two hands and not chasing the 10,000 hands. And while it's wonderful, like, you know, I'm going to teach in Mexico and in Florence, and that's wonderful. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. But I don't need to go to those places to be complete. I'm, I'm happy to go to those places and I'm happy to meet people that I'll meet there and we'll, and we'll have very meaningful experiences. But, but I don't need to chase that. Yeah. I mean, that's such a powerful place to be in, Mark, where you just feel self-sufficient, but you don't need stuff. You don't need, like, you can find happiness within your own heart you have things to be grateful and, for and so so this it is and and so but let me be clear for for our listeners and viewers that so it doesn't mean oh well then i don't I'm, i'll just sit and meditate i'm not going to do anything in life I'll, no that's no that's not what i'm saying either because like fish who have to swim in order to get water to breathe you know through the gills we as human beings and spirits and bodies, we have to move through life and engage and be in relationship. But but then dreams become kindling for the fire of aliveness. They don't become things that I urgently like, oh, my God, if I don't achieve this, I'm a failure. My life will be incomplete. No, no, they're. They're kindling for the fire of aliveness. And so we we need to have dreams and goals and work toward things. 
So what you're saying is don't be too attached to them to the point no, where you feel to. a sense of scarcity in your <clears throat> life. Yeah, I think, you know, they, we need to hold them loosely. Ah, of course, if right. I work towards something and it doesn't happen, I'll be disappointed. And that's yeah. human. But I, I have felt in my life that, you know, I would give my all to dreams. And often if the dreams don't come true, that's okay. Because sometimes in giving my all, we come true. And that's more important. That's so true. The symbolism that you talk a lot about the symbolism behind some of the iconic characters in pop culture, like Superman, Teenage Mutant Ninja yeah. Turtles, and several others. But the one that struck me the most was The Little Mermaid, because I was a child in the 90s, and I grew up watching The Little Mermaid. I loved it, <laughs> right? Uh, that was Disney's golden era, so Little Mermaid was was up there for me. So um, can you speak more about the deeper meaning that you found behind this tale and why you think it's important for us to be aware of it. Yeah. So, you know, uh, the, the little mermaid, you know, she wants to be able to live in on land, you know, she wants to be, so she gives up her natural form uh, in order to, to have legs and live in the world. But she's giving up who she is. She's giving up her basic identity, trading it. It's just, you know, instead of being accepted for who she is. And we find this very prevalent in relationships where we feel, well, if, we're, if I'm going to be loved, well, I'll give this up. And really, I think it's the other way around that, that deep love that is real and enduring is love that accepts you for who you are not asking you to sacrifice who you are and so it's it's very interesting all of those store well let me let me go here first and then we can go back to the other identity issues um so there there's also a story I think it's in there. Is it? It's the story, the Viking story, the of the. Uh, there's a there's a, a a woman who is under the spell of a wizard. This is a Norse, an old Norse story from from the uh, from that part of Northern Europe. Yeah, and Nordic, it, Nordic mythology. Yeah. Yeah, and mm-hmm. so there's a story that there's a woman who's under the spell of a wizard. And for a thousand years, he tells her how to dress and what to do and no dress like this for me and dress like that. And then finally, after a thousand years, she refuses to dress and she's naked and she undresses and she says to the wizard, this time for me. And when she does that, the spell is broken and she turns into a salmon and swims upstream. And that's the opposite of the Little Mermaid story. That's where she's been under this spell, whether for love or tricked or who knows how. For money, for money. For money, who knows, for what, for Mm -hmm. security. But she has been dressing up and not being who she is and filling other roles and being what other people want her to be. And finally, finally, whatever gave her the power 
of her own authority of being, she undresses and says, no, I'm not going to hide who I am this time for me. And the power of, of being naked, not, not just without clothes, but without masks or roles or pretense, allows her to break the spell and what and she becomes a salmon and joins the river she becomes one with life so that's that's a power that's what we need to that's what we need to hear right those are the kind of stories we need to hear because it impacts little children right it leaves an imprint on their on their subconscious mind so let me tell you one other kind of mermaid story. So, so we have the mermaid who gives up her natural being in order to be received and loved and live on land. And then we have the Nordic story, the Norse story um, of breaking that spell. So here's a third story about mermaids that talks about the true nature of relationship. This comes from a little poem by William Butler Yeats, the Irish poet. And I can tell you the poem. I can't recite it, but I can tell you it. It's imprinted on me. It's so powerful. So it's called The Mermaid. That's the little, you can probably Google it. And, but there's a, a mermaid who falls in love with a boy, a lad. And she's so, so excited to have a soulmate, to have someone, oh my God, I can finally share my deepest places with him, with someone. And so they're out in the water and, and then she takes him down because she wants to show him where she lives at the bottom. And the, the line is along the way in, in she, it gives him this deep, deep kiss and in cruel happiness, he drowns, terrible, so sad. But the power of the story is, let's look at this. The mermaid lives in the water. She can visit the land, but she lives in the water. The boy lives on land and he can visit the water, but he lives on land. So the first thing is, where is the relationship? It's on the shore. It's on the shore. And so this change, you know, we have this romantic deep romantic notion that we will be all things to each other. Oh, if we love each other, oh, we'll be all things. And now I can, you can, I can show you where I live at the depth. Well, what this story is saying, even if you love someone, not only like their depth may be different than your depth. And it's actually dangerous because what's life giving to you could drown the person you love. So it says the responsibility is the things that I care about. It's not for you to come down there. It's for me to bring up what matters to the shore and share it with each other. So we go to our depth and then we come and the shore is where the relationship happens. And everybody paradoxically has their own depth that feeds them and brings them alive, you know? So for instance, oh, I'm just seeing if my dog was. <laughs> um, so for instance, um, my wife, Susan, is a potter. And, and obviously, you know, I'm, I'm a poet and a writer. And yes. so, you know, we've been together 
28 years, I think. And, um, and, uh, but somewhere in, I don't know, the first 10 years, and I've been blessed to be prolific. I write, you know, I write so much and she can't possibly read everything I write. So, but, you know, I remember bringing, I was excited about something I wrote and I brought it to her and she said very wisely, she said, well, you need to decide, do you want me to be your reader or your partner? And I didn't hesitate. I said, oh, my God, my partner. And then as she developed her own depth, being a potter and having her studio. And and so then, yeah, no, not only can she not read everything, just like the mermaid and the boy, this depth is life-giving for me. She would probably drown down there, just like I can visit her world of pottery and sculpture and but I don't know, I might drown down there. So the responsibility is for us to share what's important with each other and not insist, oh, if you love me, you'd be able to go there with me. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's, that is so <clears throat> profound. And I, I think it's not just in intimate relationships, it's in all kinds of relationships, right? Absolutely. Uh, when you're trying to talk, when a Democrat and a Republican are trying to have a discussion about you know, contentious matters or, uh, you know, just people who are not agreeing on certain hot topics. I think that's, that's really important, that kind of approach to really meet them where they are. Yeah. And I think in that regard, one of the things that can help us today is not in uh, trying to resist the argument level up here about arguing, but I mean, so say that I, you know, you're uh, against abortion and I'm for I'm for the right to choose. And so we can get into an argument and, and we may never see things the same way. But I'm more interested now in saying I can see that's important to you. Can you tell me the story of why that's so important to you? Because then. It, that's not not with an interest in persuading you or changing your, but getting to know you. Then when we know each other, we will hear each other differently. We may never agree. You know, in the, um, there was a time period uh, during the, from, from about 700 years, from about um, 750 to 1400s in where the, you know, the Iberian Peninsula in Spain and where it was a, a Muslim uh, civilization that welcomed and integrated uh, Judeo-Christian uh, people of all. And this was an enlightened period where people weren't just, quote, tolerated. They literally worked together, created together. And one of the things that allowed that to happen there's a great book about this called The Ornament of the World. It's written by a scholar from Yale. And, and it's something we can all learn from is that it was assumed that life had more than just my view or your view. Whatever view, whatever the topic, it was assumed that there was more to it than just what you or I could see or think or feel. And therefore, people were automatically open to what else? Mm. What else is there? 
This is what I feel strongly. Whereas today in our stridency and polarization, we want to say this, what I feel is all there is, and you either fit into it or what? I'm going to kill you. I'm going to exile you. I'm going to beat you. So in this period on the Iberian Peninsula, and so what happened when people started to open up that, yes, this is what I feel, but there's more than just what I feel. Well, over the 700 years, these people who were Jewish and Christian and Muslim, well, they all started to love each other. And there was huge intermarriage. Yeah. And which was like the perfect uh, end of welcoming each other. We love each other and we come together. It's quite interesting that you mentioned that, but uh, it actually still exists in some part of the world. Last month I was in Morocco and I, I found it really interesting. The, the tour guide said that the Muslims, the Jews and the Christians, they all live in harmony there. Like you can see the huh. mosques besides temples and synagogues, they all coexist in harmony. And I was shocked by that because I was like, I didn't think there was any place on the planet where all three religions coexist in harmony, but it is, that's what's happening oh, in Morocco. Thank you for that. That's wonderful to hear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We should be consulting them and learning yeah. from them. Yeah. And, and in, in the Native American tradition, uh, I learned this beautiful custom that's hundreds of years old and still in existence that um, elder councils have for generations, they still meet in circle, not just for equity because there's no head to the circle, but so that everyone has a direct view of the center. And I love that because the assumption of that is no one view is enough. It's not about you and I arguing. It's, gee, what do you see from over there? Oh, and this is what I see from over here. And the truth encompasses what you and I, oh, and oh, and what do you see from over here? And so that it's always more than just one view. Right. That's what, it's that diversity that makes our world so beautiful that diversity of views and, and, you know, and it's, diversity, it's diversity mm. of life that makes life restorative mm. and healthy. You know, right. you look at spring, the diversity of spring, you know, there are thousands of birds and insects and each is, is drawn to pollinate one particular thing. And because of that, you have spring. Well, that's, that's, I think, why we have all the different traditions. Because we need all of them in order to pollinate the human spring. It doesn't work if there's just one. Right. You know, if the bees were fundamentalist bees and said, we're going to do it our way. Well, you wouldn't have spring. Yeah. That's so, that's so true. And Mark, I want to you know, end our conversation by talking about how people actually process their pain, how they deal with it. You say a lot of people don't do it the right way. I mean, in fact, they avoid their pain and this leads to unconscious suffering, 
which they tend to feel sharply and they can't quite understand where it's where it's coming from. And we see this with how it's manifesting in pretty alarming ways. You know, we see the rise in violence and, and, and gun violence and people taking their own lives. There's been a spike in, in suicide rates. And so tell us more about why you think this is the case. What why are we not able to deal with well, our this, pain this, this goes in a healthy way? To the archetypal that uh, challenge that human mm -hmm. beings have always faced in being alive right. and is this choice between fear and love, not just between each other, but within ourselves. You know, the Gnostic Gospels, which were Gospels that were uh, written, uh, that were found in, anonymously and later on that were believed to be in, um, in addition to the traditional Gospels. And there's a saying in there that says, if you if you let out what's inside you, it can save you. Mm. If you don't, it can destroy you. And, and this seems like a spiritual law. And we are all challenged if we let our feelings out that the the value of uh, the ex the the expressive journey of healing is that by by being honest and truthful, whether we're in pain, fear, doubt, whatever it might be, when we let that out, it, it allows us uh, to stay a conduit for life's forces. When we bottle it up, the need to express, you know, like, just look at how we breathe. We're having this, we're all inhaling and exhaling, right? Mm -hmm. If the way the heart inhales and exhales is that we feel, which is the inhalation, and we express and perceive, which is the exhalation. Just as you can't just inhale or exhale, you'll die. You can't just do one. Well, we emotionally put ourselves in great danger when we feel but don't express, when we feel but don't perceive because it needs to come out. It's part of the rhythm of life. And when we don't, that need still comes out sideways. In a lot of ways, violence is often a desperate last attempt to feel. You know, it's interesting. You look at all the, right, the excessive violent films. And if we just look at it, what is, you know, get, uh, apart from the terror, all the, ugh, you know, the blood and gore and everything, if we don't let our feelings out, there's still all the stories are about physically opening and letting what's inside out. Every story doesn't matter. So if you you know even there it's so subliminally present in in everything, and so I think this is one of the most uh, quiet acts of courage we can have is to admit what we feel, is to admit what we feel. So if we want to reduce violence in the world, the first thing we can do is make a vow to face what is ours to face and feel what is ours to feel. That takes courage. And, and it's almost always, I say almost because you never want to say always, but it's almost always 
um, restorative, a great story about this is Beethoven. We all know mm, Beethoven. I wrote that story. Mm. Oh my God, Beethoven was this, right? He brought music to the earth that was never heard on earth before him. But he also, by the age of 28, he went completely deaf. Now imagine, your gift is to hear music and bring to the earth unheard music that's never been, and you're never going to be able to hear it play. This was so depressing to him that he was contemplating suicide. And he actually lived in Vienna. He went in 1802 on a retreat to be, I got to think about this, you know. But he was really thinking about suicide. And he went to a nearby town, Heligenstadt, alone, and he began to write what he thought was a suicide note. And he was so honest in that note about what, how this, I can't bear this. How am I going to do this? But the healing reward for being truthful about what was his to feel is by the end of the note, he's not committing suicide. He unexpectedly, because of the restorative power of telling the truth of what he was feeling, he winds up at the end of the note saying, well, I guess I'll go back to Vienna and I'll make the best music I can for as long as I can. And that next decade, most music scholars think that the next decade is a decade of masterpieces. Mm. So it's just an inspiring example that if we, and it always, and this is the nature of it, you know, on this side of expressing what's real, it seems so big. But once I say the first word, eh, it's never as big as it looked. You just got to take that first step. Yeah. And you know that firsthand having gone through that, you know, your cancer journey. But let, let me say one thing about this terrible epidemic of, of mass shootings in our culture. And Yes, please do. And I... You know, these individuals are, of course, responsible for what they're doing. It's terrible. But, it, but we can't say it has nothing to do with us. Because I feel that they are like social aneurysms. So we all know an aneurysm is a weak cell, usually in the head, but can be anywhere. When the body is under great pressure that weak cell will explode and it usually leads to a stroke mm -hmm. or a blood clot in the body. Well, I feel like they are social aneurysms. They are weak cells that are exploding. Now, of course, guns, if there were, if there were less guns, they would, the explosions wouldn't be as terrible. But the point I'm trying to make here is that the social body, we're the ones who are all participating in maintaining a social a society that is so pressurized that we have an epidemic of these cells exploding more than anywhere else in the world. So while no, they are responsible individually, but we can depressurize our society, which goes back to all the things we've been discussing. 
about restoring our direct connection of life, about speaking the truth, about, about putting all of our heart's desire into the thing, one thing before us, about not, not giving ourselves away, not, not being the mermaid who gives your nature away to, to be accepted, but being who we are, about honoring each other. All of these things will help depressurize society. Now, those cells will still be weak and they have their own work to do. But we have created such a pressure cooker of values and isolation and not listening in our society that we have an epidemic of these explosions happening everywhere. Hmm. So do you think that it should start at home? Do you think it's up to the educators, teachers, and parents to start instilling this, yeah, this I sense think, of I think it, rootedness? I think, it, and, I think yeah. yes, to all of those things, and including getting rid of guns. Um, <laughs> yeah, that too. I mean, it's such an obvious thing, I know. You right. Know, I mean, just right. Yeah. Um, you know, you just look back in history and while in the Middle Ages and things, you know, warfare was grisly and horrible because it was hand to hand. But people didn't fight as often because you had to think twice <laughs> before you were getting yourself involved in something. Whereas, the, you know, the notion of an automatic weapon, that's an oxymoron. No weapon should ever be automatic. It's true. It's insane. That's insane, you know. So anyway, but yes, I think we all, going back to the beginning of our conversation, how do we restore our basic human nature by having reverence for each other, mm. by honoring the truth of our own experience, by not thinking our, our view, no matter how deeply felt, is the only view. To realize that we're more together than alone, to re reclaim that again. That yeah, that's it. That's exactly what we need to deal with those. The so storms. you know, these things are yeah. so overwhelming when we look at it globally. Right. So let me I'll just I'll just kind of close with this I, sure. I notion is that that really is each. It's Mother Teresa said courage was doing small things with love. And mm -hmm. so we can each start with what's before us. And, and you know, again, a, an image from the body that if, if I have one more healthy cell than toxic, I'm considered healthy. I'd like a lot more, but if I just have at least one, I'm more healthy. Well, if we look at the, the global body, every soul in the world is a cell in that body. And so when we do inner work that's authentic and we love each other, we are creating more healthy cells in the global body. And that's, that's really all we can do, one soul at a time. One soul at a time. Oh, Mark, <laughs> thank you so much for sharing such profound insights with us today. There's just so many enlightening and inspiring uh, pieces of wisdom that you offered us today. And we are just scratching the surface here because there is so much more that you share in this book. And I encourage everyone to get a copy of uh, Mark's book, Surviving Storms. 
finding the strength to meet adversity. Um, it is available wherever books are sold and also on Mark's website, marknepo.com. Mark, yeah. thank you so much again. It's it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, well, thank you. I, it's wonderful. And, you know, uh, let's keep in touch and we'll keep our Absolutely. conversation going. Yes, yes. All right. I hope you have a lovely rest of your day. All right. You too. Take care now. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed what you just heard, please subscribe to my podcast and feel free to share it with your friends and family. Take care and speak soon.